Welcome to Between the Lines and happy International Women's Day. In this month's episode, Aisha Khan discusses her book, The Women's Movement in Pakistan, Activism, Islam and Democracy. Interviewing Aisha is IDS fellow Maritz Tadros. Delighted to be here to celebrate with you International Women's Day. There is certainly a great deal to celebrate, but a great deal to also be weary and cautious of. The struggle for achieving gender balance in our world today is alive as ever today as it was 100 years ago. Now, a key feature of ensuring a, a better gender balance is women's political participation. One of the things that Aisha Khan's new book focuses on is women's participation in social movements. Movements in Pakistan. And this is particularly important because this study shows in very clear terms what the women's movement has contributed to in women's rights, in more humane societies, and in challenging the state where its policies would incur massive hardship onto the population at large, not just for women. The book challenges the myth that women's movements are a Western export. Through her meticulous historical research and study, she shows how these women emerged and their ideas emerged from their local contexts, how it was through interactions and engagements with local parties, with movements and with religious leaders that they came to recognize that women's rights are a fundamental aspect of locally-led struggles for social justice. The other very important aspect of Aisha Khan's work is the fact that she shows that the struggle against the influence of political Islam uh, on the state, and when I say political Islam, we're not talking about those that purport to the Muslim faith. We are talking about political parties that appropriate religion in order for them to advance their own agenda and for them to come to office. And her study shows that those that have sought to Islamicize through political Islamist ambitions, the state, uh, were doing so in ways that seriously undermined women's rights. This idea of a coexistence of a women-friendly political Islam with women's rights has been seriously challenged through the very uh, strong empirical case studies that Aisha presents. Her intention is neither to vilify those that support these movements nor to condemn them. Rather, it is to show that the impact of their struggles, if you like, or the impact of their lobbying on women's rights and human rights more broadly has, in the case of Pakistan, been very detrimental. I think what you will find particularly interesting is that it is very meticulously documented. The case studies are powerful and it is not verbose. She gets to the point clearly, lucidly and with the evidence to back her cases. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. So, Aisha, I just want to start by asking you, why this book and what is its context? I think there are two main reasons. First of all, I felt that the way in which history is written in Pakistan is very controlled by Mm. the state, and a lot of the alternative discourses and um, dissident movements never make it into the history books. So I felt that the younger generation in Pakistan really needed to know what was the struggle that women had been involved with for the past 40 years. I also felt it was time to take stock 
of accomplishments and obstacles that uh, we had faced because initially we were discouraged that we couldn't reverse some of the damage that had been done during Zia's Islamization. But I think that now if we take a long view of it, we can see that there have been some important breakthroughs like women's entry into politics. And I wanted to explain the whole trajectory. And is there a particular relevance to this moment in history? Why now? Well, I think the urgency comes from the fact that the human rights discourse and um, arguing for women's empowerment within a secular framework and a rights-based framework, pushing for civil and political rights, is now somehow seen as a passé way of advocacy. And I think that in Western academia, certainly there's a lot of focus now on pious women and their engagement with their growth as part of a divine order. And I think that the politics of these groups has been lost as the interest in Islamist women has somehow gained after 9-11. So I felt that it was really important to show that, you know, for our women's movement in Pakistan, human rights is a very central and bedrock of how we approach um, our politics, and that actually even pious women's groups have very serious politics that need to be addressed. Of course, this political moment is one where Pakistan's new prime minister, Imran Khan, has come to power, and he doesn't exactly have the credentials of someone who advances gender justice. Why? Uh, no, he doesn't. And in fact, we can, uh, if we just look at the experience that he's had in governing one province, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which was very affected by Taliban-related violence in recent years, uh, my research in that province, um, even separate from this book in particular, is that the PTI party has not got a agenda for women's progress. And they have, in fact, tried to stop domestic violence legislation in their province. At the national level, when uh, many years ago uh, the Musharraf government passed a Women's Protection Act, Imran Khan boycotted the vote. So um, we know that from actual policy and legislative stories that they do not have an agenda for women. And I think that's very worrying. And it has to do with some of the compromises that he's made with the religious right in order to get their sanction. And of course, in your book, though, you are also very honest in the sense that you don't deny that the women's movement in Pakistan has been largely associated with elite educated women. Is it really truly representative women when it's led by elites? Well, I mean, there are two, two ways of looking at that. One is, why did this particular women's movement, it seems to be the mobilization of women that comes under the most scrutiny for not being representative of all women of Pakistan. So one question is, why should it be representative for all women of Pakistan? Why not let it be assessed on its own terms by looking at what has this elite women's movement managed to actually change in the state of Pakistan? And I think the accomplishments are manifold. So that's one answer to the question. The other is that there are many different types of gender mobilizations in Pakistan. And um, this one, although it might be elite, the interests that it has been concerned with have been expansive and have had to do with all disenfranchised populations in Pakistan. So they have not only been concerned with preserving their interests, and in fact, they have taken on the state in a way that other mobilizations have been very reluctant to do, certainly amongst the progressive left. 
And in describing the wider context in which such mobilization is happening, you describe how Zia has changed the education system in ways towards Islamizing it. And you draw very interesting uh, linkages ideologically to the Saudi education system. Can you tell us the, the implications of that for the women's movement? Well, you know, one of the people who actually did the most research on this was an activist from Women's Action Forum called Rubina Segel, in which she actually went through the curriculum as it changed during the 80s under Zia to show the kind of exclusionary discourse, anti-Shia, anti-Hindu, anti-Indian, sexist way in which the curriculum was Islamized. So I wanted to see, you know, that was also the period where Saudi Arabia was spending a lot of money on propagating Wahhabi Islam. They were funding imams in our mosques. They were funding madrasas. They were even funding the government to Islamize the curriculum. So I compared, in my book, I compare it with some of the rhetoric in the Saudi curriculum, because feminists have also written on that. And I see the similarities. So I think that Maybe some women have done work on this, but it's not generally known how directly the Saudi impact has come to change our society. And therefore, you're telling us that what is represented today in Pakistani society as indigenous, as having roots in in Pakistani religion and culture, is in fact an imperialist or at least an external influence. Yes, it is. And I think that we used to have a much more a heterodox or syncretic approach to Islam. There were many different ways that were accepted of being Muslim in Pakistan. And I think now that our discourse has become very narrow, very exclusionary, for example, it's becoming increasingly anti-Shia. Ahmadis are vilified the way they, they used to be. Our blasphemy laws, people are now taking it into their own hands to kill people who they think have committed blasphemy and public acceptance of these kinds of uh, vigilante acts has grown. So the, the Islamization process has changed us as Muslims. And in your book, you talk very powerfully about how the feminist movement wasn't just advancing the rights of women, but it was talking about inclusive democracy more broadly. Yes, and I think it took a while for the women's movement to get to that point. Because first, when it became, when it arose in response to General Zia's rule in the, in the 80s, yes, it was pro-democracy, but the women's movement kind of lost its bearing in the 1990s when we had a series of weak civilian governments that weren't able to affect much change. So when General Musharraf took over in 2000 or late 1999, There were some activists who even thought, okay, maybe this might be better if he's progressive and pro-women. But we learned very fast that that was not the case, that there was no shortcut, and that if we were to achieve our rights, it had to be done by having a democratic order and also having a very substantial women's representation in the political order, not only in the assemblies, but also in political parties. And I think that's become like a major focus now of the movement. So in, in looking across at least 45 ye- or 50 years in Pakistani history, perhaps even more, doing this very, very detailed and in-depth historical overview and analysis, what surprised you most? You know, what surprised me was um, how the performance of women once they got into the elected assemblies which was the result of a long campaign by activists to get a quota for women in the assemblies. What surprised me most was how vindicated the women's struggle was by the performance of the women in the assemblies. 
um, because they address women's issues, they pushed for a whole sl slew of legislation that has been very important. And of course, detractors will say, well, you know, implementation of new laws is another thing, but maybe we shouldn't be too impatient and expect everything to fall into place right away. But I think that definitely the campaign for women's political inclusion has so far reaped great benefits for women. Can you give us some of the practical examples of the benefits that such political inclusion has reaped for women? Well, first of all, acting within the assemblies, even women on reserve seats who were literally handpicked by their parties. They have pushed pro-women legislation. We have domestic violence laws. We have Now we have um, laws against sexual harassment, against customary practices that are anti-women. We also had, prior to the legislative assemblies, we had a 33% inclusion of women in local government. And many of the women in local government, which I learned through researching my book, came in because they were part of the campaign for women's restoration of, of, of a quota. So they were actually very proactive on women's issues. They were aware and they worked very hard, which is one of the reasons actually why it appears that that quota was subsequently cut in half. So they were not just token women? Not at all. Very hardworking and conscientious. Of course, looking back at the very rich interviews, you interviewed a, a broad spectrum of women and men for this book. Can you tell us about your favorite quote or favorite passage, something that particularly moved you? You know, while I was writing the book, I kept thinking about a handwritten note that uh, my mentor was a lawyer called Shelly Zia. And when we were trying to get the Islamabad chapter of Women's Action Forum to join in the declaration that we as an organization stood for a secular state, she had handwritten some notes for me to take to a meeting that she couldn't attend. And I, I think about it often because she said in those notes that, you know, you must tell the people at the meeting that even, even if we cannot achieve that goal today, it is important because it shows future generations that we don't always have to think of justifying or framing our demands in terms of religion. And even if it doesn't work now, it might have some benefit in the years to come. And I think that's also how I think about my book, that even though this discourse might be somewhat sidelined now in favor of a stronger, a stronger politicized religious discourse, uh, maybe the younger generation over time will begin to see the value of a rights-based secular discourse. That's particularly interesting at this moment in time when we do see a marginalization, a sense of, oh, oh, this is not as powerful as mainstream in Pakistan as it is in other parts of the world, and as is happening, sorry, in other parts of the world. At this moment in time, you have a sense of this is not just for the present, but for the future. How would you want the knowledge and the experiences and encounters that you cover in this book to influence the future? I think it would be really, really valuable if this book was used like as a reference, not only for what women have achieved, but a different way of framing our history. That if we can start you know, making the case for looking at history from the perspective, from the perspective of women, and that a women's version of our history is as valid as any of the ones that are written by men in powerful positions today, I think that will, that will be something very important, and especially for our young people, to have this as a reference. Do you have any one final word you would like to say for why people really should read this book? 
Um, I think this people should read this book because I think it helps to re to to reframe, and I would like to reinvigorate the rights based discourse that is so integral to women's movements in different contexts because. I want to make the point that this is not a Western import. This is something that is really important to us. And it's now maybe it's our turn to carry the torch for that if the West is kind of backing down from that. Thank you very much, Aisha. I certainly very much look forward to sharing this book across the board. And um, I know that it has lessons that are important for all those that are engaging with all kinds of activism in Pakistan or those that want to look at the history of Pakistan through the lens that you provide, but also beyond all those that are interested in any justice movements worldwide. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Between the Lines is a monthly podcast published the first Wednesday of every month. It's brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.